Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Michael Yardney, who's the head of Metropole Property. Michael's been investing since way back in the 70s and he shares a lot of information about how he has achieved financial freedom and built a business that looks after property for investors. We have a chat about different strategies, whether it be development or renovation and the psychological drivers behind property investment and why people aren't getting ahead. Here's Michael. Michael Yardney, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. My pleasure, Mike. Now, for for anyone that maybe has been living under a rock, could you do us a favour, Michael, and let us know who you are and what you specialise in? Sure. Well, I'm the CEO, the founder of the Metropole Property Group of Companies, and we help our clients grow, protect, and pass on their wealth, and we give strategic property advice. Look, we're one of Australia's largest buyers agencies, Mike. We've got our own offices in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, and we've done some sums recently. We've been involved in over $3 billion worth of property transactions, and currently our property management divisions manage close to $2 billion worth of assets for our clients. Um, We've also got a wealth advisory company, project management, renovation division. So uh, it's quite a large organization, Mike, and it's grown from from our home office a number of years ago. That's pretty impressive. And those are some some big numbers, Mike. And I'm looking forward, and I have been for a while, of of digging into how you got yourself into that position. If we can kick off, though, with a little bit of, uh, I guess, info on the the real Michael Yardney, what, what posters were given real estate uh, on the bedroom wall as you were growing up? Mike, I actually don't think I had any posters on my wall. But at the time, and actually still, my hobby was magic. So I had lots of books on magic and magazines on magic. And that was, I guess, one of the things that entertained me when I was young. Yeah, wow. That's interesting. Um, let's start with your your property magic. And there's been quite a lot of that going sort of as far back as the, the 70s. Can you tell us how you got started in property and what your first investment was? Well, We came from a reasonably poor background. Uh, I came to Australia at the age of three. I was born in Israel. My parents were workers. And interestingly, a lot of my parents' friends were quite wealthy. My friends' parents, I guess, were wealthy. And I saw that a lot of them grew grew their wealth. They, they, They had their own businesses, but they also invested in real estate. And that's what I knew I wanted to do. And about at the age of 23, I'd saved a bit of deposit. I was still work uh, at uni. I was uh, working in Portman's, the ladies' fashion uh, oh, yeah. shop, in the stock room, uh, picking stock uh, over the holidays to, to earn money. And when I got a deposit, I got together with my parents and we bought a home in 17 Large Street, a house, 17 Large Street, South Caulfield. We paid $18,000. We took a 30-year loan, had no idea how we are going to pay it off. And, Mike, I got $12 a week rent, and I was excited. It was really good. Cool. <laughs> uh, th- then Gough Whitlam came into power, and inflation took off, and the property went up in value. And I thought, hey, why didn't anyone tell me about this? This is good. I had enough equity to buy a second one. My mistake was selling both those properties. I sold Lart Street um, for my half year of $32,000, uh, bought it back from my parents in the early 2000s. My wife Pam and I bought it for $250,000. we have since built two townhouses on it. So that's 
initial house that was worth 18000 is probably worth well over $2 million today. Yeah, wow, that's that's quite a story for that little uh, little block of dirt. So what 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 can you talk us through the I guess the transition from you you being bitten by that real estate bug, seeing that it, it created wealth for people, creating some wealth for yourself and then starting your your business as as Metropole. Well, I got involved in property investment early. I got involved in property development in the 1980s. did a few on my own and then in partnership with a good friend and started the company Metropole Properties in 1979. The name came from the restaurant where we actually decided to do it. It was a restaurant called The Metropole. It sounded like a good name. Um, And we did some really, really brave things in the 1980s. I was... thought I was smarter than I was. Uh, the worst thing an investor can do is get it right first time because you've got an overinflated sense of confidence. And it was really a property boom that carried me away. Uh, so got involved in some industrial developments, uh, some land subdivisions, did some big things. Um, Unfortunately, that all came to a halt in the late uh, 80s, early 90s with the recession we had to have. Uh, I had a few friends and business partners who who went bankrupt in that time. Fortunately, I got through that, but it taught me to be a much more cautious investor, a much more cautious developer. Uh, I learned a lot more about property cycles uh, during that uh, terrible early 90s. Middle 90s, I uh, went through my asset reallocation program. I went through a divorce and had to uh, uh, restart again. And one of my friends, one of my mentors said to me, Michael, you're doing well. You've learned how to do this. If you help other people become wealthy, if you show other people, it's going to make you wealthy as well. So I started doing project management for other people investors helping them become property developers one thing led to another uh, pam left her job we started working from home uh, and in 2001 we set up uh, property management 2002 uh three three actually we, we we started the buyers agency in melbourne 2006 in brisbane in 2008 in sydney and the business has kept growing from there yeah, well, and I guess you've got to the point where you can essentially retire some some years ago. How, how did what was there any sort of formula to getting to that point where you were financially free? Was there was there something that you struck on, or was it a few mistakes and a few wins that sort of got you there in a haphazard way? Can you walk us through that? A lot of mistakes, Mike. I'm actually a real success at failure. Uh, I guess there's been a tenacity to keep going. Many years ago, I learned the benefit of having mentors and having coaches. So I think one of the big things that has helped my business grow is having external business coaches to help me and also mentors. And the business that we are talking about today that uh, is a leading force and award winner in the industry. I planned at a seminar uh, run by Roger Hamilton. Uh, actually, I apologise, was Brad Sugars. Many years ago at, in Curran Cove, we went and spent $10,000 each, Pam and I, uh, for a, a five-day business entrepreneurial seminar. That was a lot of money in the late 90s. Yeah. Um, and I put together a business plan and I decided what I was going to do. And interestingly, a couple of years ago, I came across that bit of paper and I actually found I'd fulfilled 
a lot of those dreams. So I set as my goals, where I wanted to be, and that meant to have a national presence, it meant to be a published author, it meant to be seen as a leading expert. And then once I set my goals, then I did what I had to do to achieve those goals. And it's actually much the same in any business or even as in, in property investment, Mike. So what are, what are some of the what are some of the juicier mistakes? I, I mean, I, I think that, that listeners really relate to, to people that that can sort of say, yes, I've, I've achieved a, a fantastic level of success, but I've really stuffed it up a few times as well. Oh, look, I've made mistakes in my business life, <laughs> employing the wrong people. I've made mistakes in my personal life. As I said, I ruined my first marriage and I've made lots of investment mistakes, but hopefully not too many lately. I think the first mistake I made was selling properties. I thought I needed to sell for cash flow. And I guess I did to a degree because finance was different in those days. Look, I can even remember the first renovation I did. I learned the concept of adding value through renovation. Nobody told me you actually got to open the windows and open the doors to air <laughs> and let ventilation come through. So I was painting the the kitchen <laughs> of a property in Bond Street, Caulfield, and made myself terribly sick with all the fumes. <laughs> so the mistakes are as simple as that to, I guess, early in the piece, not understanding the the power of finance, that residential real estate is a game of finance with some uh, houses thrown in the middle. Uh, and finance was more difficult in those days, but it's come around again now that we're the credit squeeze at the moment. Um, and not understanding the importance of doing detailed feasibilities. I made some very, very brave calls in the 80s when we did some big developments, uh, but because I thought this will the boom will just continue on forever in the uh as we got to the late 80s when interest rates started to go up i had a very significant commercial property portfolio and about a 70 percent loan to value ratio and as interest rates went up the value of my properties went down and from 30 percent loan to value sorry 70 percent loan to value ratio 30 percent equity i ended up with no equity at all the values plummeted wow. commercial property actually is much more cyclical than residential and the bank said sell wow. and i said who too no one was buying properties yeah. in those days but i did have the cash flow to get me through when others didn't so the banks left me alone while they targeted people who at least were were not keeping up with their mortgages so i learned along the way the importance of having financial buffers because I didn't at the time, the importance of having a financial strategy, the importance of um, not having all your interest rates uh, variable because you can get caught out or all locked in and coming out at the same time as happened to in a large proportion of my loans in the early 90s in a very high interest rate environment. And I also, I guess, learned that I'm nowhere near as smart as I thought I was and uh, that every year something is going to come out of the blue, either something political like would have happened in your industry last year with the tax uh, depreciation laws that yeah. changed something uh, uh, economic overseas or here. And so knowing that despite having the best plans, something is going to come out to disrupt those. But the other is the perspective I've now got that this too shall pass. Uh, the, in other words, the good 
and the bad times are going to move on. So be prepared for them. Maximise your upside and be prepared to cover your downside. And I guess this this is hard one experience, and you've witnessed a, a number of, of property cycles. What 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 have you seen, and and what what patterns can you recognise in in the in the property cycles? Well, interestingly, when I first started investing, the yields on residential real estate, Mike, were around 10%. Uh, in fact, if interest rates were below 10%, uh, you're happy if you had an interest rate with a, with a nine in front of it. Uh, I have always been investing for capital growth, but I have learned over time to recognize the importance of cash flow. I've modeled myself on other people and seen what's gone on also and how, how they've been successful. And over the time, I've recognized that the cycle can be your friend and be prepared for the lower part, the down stage of the cycle, the slump stage of the cycle, um, and take advantage of it. So to be cashed up for those periods of time. I've also recognized that the cycle isn't a particular period of time. I'm sure there's cycles, but there's cycles within cycles. So each state is its own stage of the property cycle. And then there's different property types, uh, whether it's the higher end of the market, the middle range, the lower end, geographic apartments, houses, they're all running at slightly different stages of the cycle. But take advantage of the opportunity the cycle makes, uh, gives you. So I fortunately have been in the opportunity, had the opportunity in previous downturns to get in into property and uh, have a long-term perspective. And by having that, uh, it's made me lots of money. So the one thing not to do is change your strategy because of external factors or because of the cycle. You may change where you invest a bit, but my strategy is to buy high-growth properties, areas that are going to outperform the averages because of the demographics, add value to them, and hold them for the long term. So I don't chase the next hotspot or the next shiny toy. I've actually done very well by sticking to my strategy. You make it sound very simple, I guess, but a lot of people aren't following that sort of advice, even if they might sort of know it to be true. People tend to have sort of itchy trigger fingers and they want to they want to sell to sort of lock in the gain or, or they, they panic if there's something something going on in the political markets. Do you think that's a, a reason why investors aren't hitting their goals? One of the things I learned along the way, Mike, was that as human beings, we act irrationally. We think we're irrational, but we're not. We act irrationally, particularly related to money. And uh, so I've studied a lot about behavioral finance psychology. See, Mike, when I first started doing seminars, I wanted to educate people. I wanted to teach people what I know. I enjoyed doing that. And I'd have a group of people there, 100, 200 people would be there. And I don't know, 5% would do something and 95% didn't. So then I did full day seminars. I had multi-speaker events. I did long events. And much the same happened. I recognized that a small group of people move and do something and the rest don't, or they do the wrong thing. I see that they come to me and they say, oh, yeah, I've read your blogs. I've listened to your podcast, I've followed you, I've read your books, and, and I've followed your strategy, but it hasn't worked. And no, they haven't. They've taken bits and pieces and tweaked it and done what they wanted. And they, so that we have these 
biases. People come up and uh, uh, in the old days when I used to go to expos and seminars and say, look, I've just bought a property and they name a suburb. Do you think it? No, sorry, they wouldn't say that. They said, oh, do you think so-and-so is a good suburb to invest? And I said, you know me, you know what I say, that's not where I'd invest. Oh, but do you think it's a good place? And I said, I bet you just bought a property there, haven't you? So yes, people chase the next hotspot, the next shiny toy. It's human nature. One of the big lessons of successful investors, business people, is to delay gratification. Wealth in property, as in everything else, is the transfer of money from the impatient to the patient. Well, and we do certainly like to to pick on millennials for for their lack of delay gratification. But I guess it's something that we all struggle with. You mentioned that you you know your your basic strategy is buy good quality assets that are going to outperform and and basically hold on to them for for dear life. A lot of property experts they they end up landing on a, a formula. Um, you know they 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 end up being a development person or a subdivision person. Is there a, a strategy? or a formula that you've used along your investment journey? Yes, I have. But as I've observed people over the last 40 years I've been in property, I've found that whichever formula you use, 5 10% do really, really well, and the vast majority don't. So a really small group of people do well buying regional properties, but the majority don't. Reasonably small percentage of people do well buying cash flow positive properties, but the majority don't. And really much the same with my strategy of buying high growth property. We know that 50% of people who get into property sell up in the first five years, and most investors never get past their second property. So while I have a very firm view on the way to become exceedingly wealthy through property, And you said a moment ago, it sounds easy. It may be easy, but it's not simple. And that's not a play on words. It's easy if you follow the strategy. It's not simple because your emotions get in the way. So my strategy is to follow I, actually when it ch- i did change over the years in the past i used to look at all the research now i look forward and that's actually changed the way my investment results are and those of my clients so rather than looking at all those uh, the information you get about what happened to property in the past i look for future indicators leading indicators things that are happening before they change such as where economic growth is going to be because economic growth leads to wages growth leads to jobs growth leads to population growth which leads to the demand for property so we only invest in capital cities because even though there are opportunities elsewhere why fight the big trend then only in the three big east coast capital cities because in general that's where all the jobs are the higher paying jobs and we've changed from being a manufacturing country to really being a service related service industry country then within those states those capital cities only in the capital cities i should say we invest in the suburbs with the high demographic high wages uh, demographic people who've got high disposable incomes now i know some people say buy below medium price but my strategy is not to look for affordable properties because they're cheap but to look for properties that are affordable because the demographic in the area has got a high disposable income and are prepared to and are willing to 
pay a premium to live in those locations. And in general, they're close to the CBD, close to the water, the inner and middle ring suburbs of our CBDs, not the inner CBD, but the inner middle ring suburbs of our, of our cities, Mike. And in, the, in those properties, I find those locations, because location probably does about 80% of the heavy lifting, I buy the right property, an investment-grade property, and in particular ones to which I can add value through renovations or development. So by having this structured approach it has allowed us to uh, weather the ups and downs of the cycle and sure we've missed out on the occasional hotspot like hobart last year no problem this year's hotspot becomes next year's not spot so uh, i'm very comfortable with our strategy yeah and, and i guess that it's it's great to to post a 20 percent growth but if you are looking at a long time horizon and we're comparing that over 30 years who's to say that there isn't a, a suburb in melbourne that's going to do twice as much i guess um, well, we've got 30-year records, so our research department goes back and we've got all these records from the REIA, and so we can tell you suburb by suburb what has happened over the last 30 years. And very, very clearly, uh, Melbourne has been the best-performing property market Overall, there's no doubt that some segments of other suburbs of uh, cities have done better than the poorest of poor forming areas in Melbourne. So uh, I'm not saying Melbourne's the only place to invest, but very clearly the inner and middle ring suburbs have performed better than the outer suburbs, not as much in the last 10 years or the last five years. But you can't tell me that in 20 years' time, uh, Parramatta, no matter how big it develops, is going to be the land underneath the building there is going to be as valuable as uh, Darling Harbour or Bronte or Bondi or in Dandenong in Melbourne. It's going to ever be close to the beach in Brighton. So, though, if investors think like home buyers, because it's really home buyers that drive our markets, if you were a home buyer and money was no object and you could invest or apologise, live wherever ever you wanted, in general, people would want to live to close to the amenities, close to the CBD, close to all the action is, where is where the transport is. And that's going to become more and more important in the future, Mike, as our cities become bigger. So those are the areas that can outperform in the long term. Yeah, I, I guess I can't argue with the, the Parramatta analogy, that's, that's for sure, as, as hot as that market is. Michael, what about people that have, say, a, a limited budget for their property investing? You, you talk about targeting areas that have, have high disposable incomes. Presumably, they also have a, a pretty high cost to get into those markets. Is that a case that we should save till we can get the enough funds to buy in these premium suburbs or are there are there still opportunities? Is, is it not necessarily we're needing a million dollars to invest? Okay. Well, when you buy an investment property, there are three things to play with. There's the budget. That's usually set by the banks. And at the moment, that's a bit harder to get. There's location. And you can't compromise on that because that's going to make the big, big difference. And then the property in the location. So I would rather buy a one-bedroom apartment in a better location than a house and land in an outer area. But currently... At Metropole, when we see a client, where we suggest they invest depends really very, very much upon their budget. So uh, if I can give some examples, Mike, we're Please. currently looking for two people, uh, for, for uh, families for, for blocks of apartments. So if people give us 3 to $6 million, that's the sort of thing we'd be suggesting for them, those old blocks of apartments in Sydney or Melbourne with the potential to do up because they're irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Then if their budget is uh, $1.5 to $2.5 million or so, we involved currently in 54 development projects, helping our clients buy an old house close to land value, pulling it down and acting as their project manager. 
manager and uh, uh, helping them build two townhouses duplex, which they'd keep in the long term. If they've got uh, one to one and a half million dollars, we're sometimes buying even new properties, uh, new townhouses uh, in good locations because the location is important, um, or we're buying still there's great opportunities in the 800 to $1.5 million in Sydney for well-located properties. In Melbourne, what we're tending to buy is properties with a land component because apartments aren't doing as well, so we tend to buy the older villains. And I'm coming to your question because what do you do if you've got different uh, budgets? Because even if you've got less than that, between 550 and 657, you can actually buy a house in a great suburb in Brisbane uh, and have the whole land there and basically be in a good location in an inner or middle ring suburb. And below about 500,000, from 400 up, we're still buying one-bedroom apartments in Melbourne. But interestingly, all the ones we've bought in the last little while have been ground floor ones which have had courtyards. They're pretty special. They're a bit unique. They're a bit different. Below the 400,000, I know people are buying things. We have chosen not to. Our business model is not to help everybody, but help people who want to follow our strategy of buying the sort of properties that are going to be in continuous strong demand in the long term. So my advice, and I actually only sent that in an email to somebody today who said, I haven't got 400,000, what should I do? And I said, sometimes the right thing to do is nothing. Right. Just wait. I, I find that really interesting that you would you would rather buy, a say, a one-bedroom place in a good area than, say, a, a lovely new four-bedroom place in an area that, that doesn't have those fundamentals. And, yeah, interesting that you're standing by your strategy and you're quite happy to say, look, we're not the, the people for you. Just speaking of your clients, I, I know you like to ask sort of three things before you work with them, and, and that is what's their financial position and what's their budget, what's their goal, where they want to be in life, and then what's their risk profile and then I guess you you look at their time horizon so someone in their 50s might be a little bit more urgent to get to their retirement goal than someone in their 20s is that how you would generally start strategizing for a client well, interestingly, our model is that we do strategize first. That's really, really important. So while we have a buyer's agency, we all clients see a property strategist first, and the strategist asks those sort of questions. The one you've left out, though, is a bit about their risk profile as well. In other words, uh, oh, sorry, you did mention that. I apologize. So really, we want to understand where they are now, where they want to get to in the future, and what they've done in the past, because why haven't they already achieved it and what's held them back? For many people, it's a fear of debt, but it takes the average property investor 30 years to become financially independent, Mike. The first 10, 15 years, they have to learn what not to do. Now, they shouldn't have to do that, but they seem to need to do that. They they, they put their uh, ladder up against the wrong wall, and so every step they take takes them further away. They buy cash flow positive properties. They try and flip properties. They buy regional properties, and then they miss out. So then they've got to unravel that, and then it takes a couple of good property cycles to help them grow their wealth. So the longer the time horizon they've got, the better it is. So look, for some of our people 
people who ring us up, uh, most we can do them is give them the recommendation to buy one of my books and educate themselves because they're not in the position to do anything at all. So I'd rather them educate themselves. Um, for other people, uh, we, we do a wealth plan. We have a financial planning arm as well. So sometimes they need a, a strategic strategy. That's a double word, but yeah. basically to help them know where they're heading and then a plan to follow it through. And then through our buyer's agency, we will help them implement that plan, Mike. Michael, I know a lot of people ask you why you're still working, but there's work and then there's having the number one property blog, writing eight books, hosting a, a podcast and wealth retreats. You, you, you fill up a lot of your life with, with this. I'm wondering, are you really broke or really passionate? It's got to be one or the other. <laughs> well, Michael, people say to me, now that your candles cost more than your birthday cake, why are you still doing it? Well, I'm sitting here talking about property and having my coffee and getting paid for it. I'm not getting paid for this, but for what I do. Otherwise, I'd be sitting in the coffee shop downstairs having a coffee and talking about property and not getting paid for it. So why not do it? But I think I can maybe explain it in a better way, Mike. May I? Yeah, of course. I remember reading recently that Mick Jagger, you know, the, the Rolling Stone, was touring America. He's 74 years old, and he's doing a multi-city tour of America at the age of 74, turning up at one city, performing, leaving, and then going on to the next place. Now, I suppose that should be reassuring for me. It suggests that maybe in nine years' time, I might still somehow or other be able to get up on stage <laughs> and deliver my seminars. But over the years, I've worked hard so that now I don't need to work for financial reasons. But I think I'm still enjoying doing it. And I think I'm still going to enjoy doing it when I'm 74, just like Mick Jagger does. As far as I know, Mick's got no unmet financial needs, but he's still touring largely because he's got nothing better to do. Mm. I think a more constructive comment would be he's still touring because he's not got nothing else to do for which he's got comparable enthusiasm. So you're right, Mike, it's my passion. There you go. I'm sure Mick has, has blown a bit of cash over the years, but I'm sure that the royalty checks are, are keeping him warm at night. He, uh, of course, doesn't need to be doing it like yourself. Um, I, I want to talk a, a little bit about these, these people that are starting out investing and maybe these are people on the periphery of, of not, maybe not having the, the budget to, to work with you or, or maybe they do, they've saved a bit of money. The, the, getting the first investment right, you, you, you mentioned can sometimes be a bit of a curse because you've got uh, you've got the confidence but a lot of people get it wrong and that really stops them from ever going any further it stops them from 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 being a, a multi-portfolio investor H how important is it that that one is actually right it's critical, Mike. The statistics from the AHRIU show that 50% of people who buy an investment property sell up within the first five years. Interestingly, 20% sell up in the first year, Mike. So they've got the wrong finance, they've bought the wrong property, they've overcommitted themselves, they've got scammed, whatever. And of those who stay in property, so of that 2 million Australians who actually stay in property, according to the tax department, there's 19,300-odd people. That's it, 19,300 who own six or more properties. Interestingly, when we were talking about those statistics at work, uh, one of my team said, but hey, a huge percentage of the clients at Metropole have more than that, and th that made us feel good. But the answer is 92% never get past their second property. So most property investors fail. They fail to get the financial freedom they want because they're doing it to get choices and freedom in life. So if you get the right property, it's the springboard to moving forward. And if it's not, it's the demoralizer that stops you moving forward, Mike. You're right. Part of the problem, I think, is that, that 
the the talk tends to be more around the hotspot. I know you mentioned that people were coming to you at expos talking about hotspots. Um, why do you think investors are wanting to talk first about the property rather than the the strategy or the or the goal or the plan? Well, I think firstly, most people think they know a bit about property because they've lived in one, they've rented one, they've lived with their parents in one, so they think they know it. And knowing your local area isn't the same as knowing the property market or understanding the fundamentals of property. So most investors get into the market not understanding about finance, about economics, about demographics, about all the factors that drive the property market. But the main reason is emotion. They're emotionally involved. People sort of fall in love with the concept of buying property and they're sort of twisted. They buy close to where they live, close to where they want to retire or holiday. Now, Mike, that's what I did. That first property I bought in Large Street, Caulfield, that we spoke about a while ago, when I got involved in the 1970s, there was no data, there was no research, there were no internet blogs. So I bought close to my school, where I'd gone years before, close to where my mum went shopping, close to where I lived. I just happened to luck out because it was the suburb of Caulfield, which had a great uh, demographic and was going through gentrification. Um, but today, there's no excuse to get it wrong. The trouble is, there are so many people vying for your attention. There are so many fake experts on the internet saying, come to my seminar and you can buy seven properties in seven minutes, or you can do it without uh, any money down or with your lunch money and or, or you don't even need to own a property just do something fancy with Airbnb and you, you'll become a millionaire overnight uh, and these scams get people's greed glands going uh, again as I said before wealth is the transfer of money from the impatient to the patient <laughs> I think that's a good quote Michael we talked a little bit about some of the strategies that you, you would have for, for new investors when, when, when people get to that sort of three four or five um, property portfolio do, do, the, do the problems with getting finance certainly in the current market necessitate that they change their their strategies are, are people hitting the wall trying to sort of revalue pool equity and go again when they've got a couple of properties under their belt currently they are like we're in a, a credit squeeze at the moment so we're fortunately in a low interest rate environment so this time around APRA and the Reserve Bank to a degree have slowed down our property markets by tightening lending criteria and while it slowed the market down. That's been a good thing because if not, we would have continued with the unsustainable growth in Melbourne and Sydney, which would have led to a, a crash. This time around, we're having a soft landing, so that's good. But it means that some people who could have borrowed more, well, actually, most people who would have been able to borrow more a year ago can't today. So it's holding back people, particularly who have multiple properties. Um one thing that one has to remember is that property investment is lumpy. So we review our clients every year, and if there's something they can do, they can, and if not, they really should just be sitting back uh, and hibernating, going and living their lives and coming back a year later to see if they can do something. So the worst thing to do is change your long-term plans because of short-term market changes and buying a secondary property, which is going to not get you where you want to go. That's why you have to have a plan. You have to have an end game, and then you've got a point that 
direction. But a lot of our clients, once they've bought a number of properties, the role is to now add commercial properties. Shouldn't do it too early. When you asked about my mistakes earlier, one that I left out was I got involved in commercial property too early. And that's one of the things that almost took me down in the early 90s because they're much more cyclical. When they're vacant, they're vacant for, for much longer. But they're also a high yield investment. And it is important as you grow your portfolio to start lowering your loan-to-value ratios, getting more yield. So in my mind, there are three stages in the investments journey. Stage one is asset accumulation. You've got to accumulate a large asset base, then slowly lower your loan-to-value ratios, stage two, and stage three, living off your property portfolio, whether it's off the rents, off the equity, whichever strategy works for you at the time. Uh, so as one matures in your property journey, adding commercial properties with reasonably comfortable loan-to-value ratios helps uh, the cash flow as well, Mike. Yeah, and I guess those yields are, are going to help you to, to pay down the debt on that property and maybe other properties in the portfolio yes. as well. Yes. If there's if there's one thing that you could put, put your finger on as a mistake that you see property investors as make, if there's one sort of takeaway where you, you'd, you'd love the world to, to stop doing one particular thing, what, what do you think that would be, Michael? Well, we already mentioned it, not getting enticed by those by those get-rich-quick schemes. Yep. In other words, thinking that I'm going to buy a property and then it'll, it'll pay for my school fees, or I'm going to buy a property and I'll go away on holidays, or I'm not going to have to do anything at set and forget, not at all. And I guess if I could throw in a second mistake that people make, and we've mentioned it a bit before, is looking for information that validates their own preconceived ideas and dismissing any input that conflicts with your reasoning. So... Educate yourself, learn, but be really careful who you learn from. And if you've got a particular idea, just be careful and look at the contrary and see, is it possible that I'm wrong? Yeah, I, I guess that's a, that's a really important idea because you could imagine someone saying or thinking Dubbo is where I want to invest. It, it wouldn't take much Google work to find someone who says Dubbo is a great investment, but the, the majority of people might be saying that it's not. Now, I don't know particularly the, I guess, the, the, the market dynamics of, of Dubbo is just an example, but we certainly do look for confirmation of our biases. Again, that's knowing your local area which is not the same as knowing your property market and yet it may mean that you could find a uh, a bit of a bargain because you know that uh, aunt mary down the road is selling and she's going through a divorce and has to sell quickly but that doesn't mean that you're going to have a good investment the short-term one-off profit isn't where you make your money you make your money when you buy property not because you buy cheaply but because you buy the right property yeah i guess the 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 enticement of of getting a snappy deal is really outweighed by the returns over 30 years if there's nothing there you you, me right. you mentioned that uh, your 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 project managing a lot of developments for for your clients how how important has have, have developments been for your personal strategy well it's something I got involved with in the 80s. And interestingly, I learned a lot then because I got through a few developments and made money. But at the end, when I looked honestly, I made money because of a rising market. If I made those same mistakes today in the current flat market, I'd go broke very, very quickly. So I've learned and I've honed my skills and I've improved uh, what I'm doing. So developments did get me going and helped grow my wealth faster and quicker, it sort of 
buying properties at wholesale. It's one of the commonest, the most common reason people approach us at Metropole uh, because they want to become a property developer. But most people can't because it takes a lot more money than you think you need and a lot more serviceability. And it's definitely not for beginning investors. I believe you've got to cut your teeth, owning a couple of investments, doing some renovations, having some successes and having a few failures because development's a longish process uh, and you're fighting with councils and neighbours and uh, builders. And even though you use this as project managers, uh, there are emotional ups and downs. So uh, it's not for the faint-hearted, but it's been a great way of doing things. Look, recently I was uh, looking at buying a commercial property. It was a pharmacy in uh, Church Street, Brighton. It was an auction of a, a great uh, a, a trophy property that hadn't been sold for 40 years. And I was telling Bryce, my son, who runs our development division, I said, hey, I'm actually thinking of going for that at auction. And he was smart. He said, Dad, just do the numbers, do the figures, do the sums. Look how much more you make out of projects and getting a project and doing a development. Um, and so there was even my emotions running wild. I would love to own that and say I own that. Big, not, it was at least to a pharmacy. The pharmacy had nowhere to go. It was somewhere that had, hadn't been sold for 40 years. And in fact, uh, uh, some lucky investors bought it. But I've done even better by putting my money so I don't own the trophy, but I own some great investment properties that are working hard, giving Pam and me the lifestyle we enjoy. It's nice to see that even with your experience, you've still got this little emotional monster inside making you or suggesting that you make impetuous decisions that aren't actually sort of aligned with your strategy. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I, I still get uh, uh, sidetracked and emotional. We're all human. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons I have mastermind groups and mentors and business coaches. What, I, I spend over $100,000 a year on business coaching, but I see that as an investment. And that's one of the reasons I've always run a mentorship program to help other people. It's one of, it's an investment that I probably, I've worked out, get about $30 for every dollar I spend on it. It's a huge in, uh, return that I couldn't get any other way by having people see my blind spots, have transformational conversations with me, Mike. Yeah, wow, that is a good ROI. You mentioned just a, a moment ago that uh, that renovation is, is maybe a, a better strategy for the people that don't have the, I guess, the, the wherewithal or the budget to get into developments. There's a there's a, a plethora of, of renovation shows. There's a lot of buzz around it. Is it still a, a great way to get a quick equity and yield boost or, or, or are we better off ignoring those shows and, and looking at established properties that uh, that are going to perform over the long term okay well a lot of developers started off renovating so if you're planning to become a developer in the future it's a really good uh, learning ground the answer is renovations are a good way of adding value but they're not a way of making quick money to flip even the block if you actually took all the numbers and figures into account and the interest involved in the uh, in holding costs they don't make any money doing the the flip so renovation my strategy is buy renovate rent out refinance and repeat a brr strategy uh, as opposed to buy and flip that doesn't work unless you do major structural work which to me then isn't a renovation and on that basis uh, all you've got to do is pay stamp duty and start all over again so 
if you buy an older property and you can't afford to renovate now, no big deal. Get the best property you can today because the potential to add value and renovate is going to be there in the future. And that gives you good depreciation benefits. It makes it more attractive to a wide range of tenants, therefore getting you a better rent. And it manufactures capital growth, a one-off capital growth. So you've still got to have the underlying fundamentals of the best property in the best location you can afford mike that's interesting yeah i appreciate the 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 insight in, into into that and, and and certainly something that we've seen some of our clients do do very well at and uh as you mentioned great for depreciation as well i, I want to talk about mindset it, it's 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 very clear that it comes out in your your blogs and and, and speaking about the emotional decisions and about i guess the barriers to success how, how important is mindset as a part of your coaching whether you're mentoring people or, or they're coming and working through your business well it's interesting it's also an important part of our team and how we help them and a short while ago we ran wealth retreat which is australia's high-end uh, property and entrepreneurial workshop where people spend ten thousand dollars to spend five days with us and most of these people are already very successful business people investors and entrepreneurs and the first two days are all about mindset understanding their limiting beliefs understanding what's held them back and uh, getting rid of those limiting beliefs and taking them to the next level because unless we do that first mike all the tax finance property development other strategies business strategies wouldn't help them because um, we we are think we're rational but we're not our, our, our brain is i'm told two million years old and it's basically there to prevent uh, uh, us getting into trouble it looks for safety it uh, we have all these cognitive biases so as property investors we're often our own worst enemy so that's why behavioral finance psychology is really important to me because it's not the decisions we make and the opportunities we consider or the investments we miss out on but it's the way we think that gets us into trouble these biases our brain sneakily hides um, uh, makes decisions for us that interestingly are not necessarily in our best financial interest um, they these biases get us to spend more save less feel more confident in our decisions than perhaps we should be the scary thing is in the most part this all happens at the subconscious unconscious level we're not even aware of it so it's a very very big part of my teaching because when you turn up your financial thermostat it gets you to the next level maybe i can explain it in a different way mike i believe if you took all the money in the world and distributed it equally and to be back in the same proportions, the same pockets in, I don't know, three, four, five years' time. Would you agree with that? I think you're probably right, yeah. And the reason is because if you suddenly get a windfall, such as a property success, uh, an inheritance, tats lotto, and you haven't grown to be where you want to, to be the person who can handle that money, you're going to lose it. So I often say that you're not going to be able to drive a, a Ferrari with the, the uh, mindset, of, with the engine of a Hyundai. So you've got to grow to be a better person and not better in other ways. It's not denigrating you as a, the value of a person, but your headspace has got to be at the next level. So if you see the millionaires, the billionaires that we deal with, um, if they go broke and they do all business people have a bad time they pick up again they get going again um while the average australian's headspace is basically set at you know having a net equity of a few thousand dollars and if you give them more they're just going to find a way of spending it i think that the lotto is a is a great example i'd love to see the stats of 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 what 
the people that that win a big windfall or maybe a couple of million dollars what what they have left after after 10 years i i, I think you're, you're right is that we've got to we've got to learn how to to not be emotional and to to, to plan and and people aren't really prepared for that do you, you think that's a that's a big problem with with the innate nature of a person and and the nature of investing long term Mike, I have seen that with people who've inherited money. I've actually never come across somebody who's won the big lotto, but I actually have seen people who've got inheritances of hundreds of thousands of dollars and a few of millions of dollars, and then they, the brothers and sisters argue and fight about it, and then they sell the good property that they should have held on to, or they spend lots of money and have a holiday and give some away to this person and that person, and then come back to us and say, oh, I've got 200000 left, what can I do with it? Well, why didn't you come to us when you had $2 million? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I, that's absolutely crazy. You think about what you could do with two million compared to two hundred thousand. Michael, mm. can can you walk us through some of the services that you offer? So, if someone gives your your office a, a call and and they're wanting to to grow their portfolio or start a portfolio, what are, what are some of the the ways that you help them out? Well, we first of all, as you said a bit earlier, and understand where they are, where they want to be, and if we can help them, because our services don't suit everybody, so they're going to have to want to. Uh, uh, own property and also uh, be happy to follow our strategic way of thinking, but we're going to give them good sound reasons and information as to why. So the first thing is to have a strategic consultation and create a wealth plan for them. We also have a wealth advisory business, Ken Race, my business partner in uh, wealth advisory is an accountant, a financial planner. Um, and, and so some people need the right structuring and uh, financial planning. We've got a buyer's agency that implements the strategies and our own teams in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. So rather than fly in, fly out and uh, you never get the right perspective you can do all the homework you can do all the research on the internet but the one thing that you can't get on the internet mike is perspective so our wealth strategists our property strategists interestingly don't come from a property background uh, our national director of property strategy kate she comes from um uh, she's a cfa and comes from an investment background uh rita one of our property strategists uh, is 30 years uh ANZ banking uh, history, a, com a commercial banker. Breton's uh, my business partner in Brisbane, has got a economics degree, uh, as is Ahmed in Sydney. So the people who give you advice uh, give you wealth advice rather than property advice, with property being the vehicle. And then the buyer's agents, they've got the property history. They're ex-sales agents. We, so we don't employ enthusiastic amateurs. We employ people who've got a huge network of uh, contacts. In Melbourne, more than half the properties we buy are off-market because of that network of contacts. Then our other services include adding value through renovations. Our renovation division last year did 70 seven oh renovations for, for clients wow. and our development division. So our strategy is to buy a property and add value through renovations. Our property management division, the same property managers that look after my assets would look after yours and they do it smartly. Uh, we look after close to $2 billion worth of properties under our property management division. Uh, but we then don't leave our clients. It's not transactional based. We really want to have a long-term relationship. So we do annual reviews. And then of course, there's all the educational things through the blogs, the podcasts, the seminars. So it's, it's quite a diverse company over three states with just over 50 people involved. Wow, it's quite an operation. It sounds like you've got all the bases covered there, Michael. How, how, it took a long, long time. <laughs> how, do, how do people get in touch with you or your team or, or if they want to make a connection with you? 
Sure. Well, 1300 Metropol, the name of the company, or metropol.com.au, or if you just do a search on Michael Yartney, Google will come up with all clever ways of getting in contact with us. Good old Google. Now, Michael, this might be a tricky one and maybe something that we've already covered, but if, if, if there's one piece of invi- advice that you could impart, uh, one takeaway from, from this podcast, what, what do you think that might be? Mike, I've said it twice, but if you allow me, I'll say it a third time. Wealth is a transfer of money from the impatient to the patient. So learn delayed gratification. What you do today will get you to where you need to go tomorrow. So set a plan, set a goal and be patient because residential real estate isn't a get-rich-quick scheme, Mike. Fantastic. I think that uh, there's a bit of science to say if you hear something three times, it's more likely to sink in. So that's our, that's our gift to you, listener. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for joining me. I've had lots of fun, Mike. Beautiful. Have a great day. 